Hey gang, welcome to episode 48 of the No Persinium podcast, your podcast about immersive theater and its ilk. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from Los Angeles. The original plan for this episode was for it to be our After Dark episode, with Zay and myself getting philosophical late into the evening. But there is a show that is in Santa Monica right now. It is having its closing weekend this very weekend. It's called Second Skin. I wrote a review of it uh, about a week ago, and you should check it out. It's over at the Medium Collection. And I interviewed the director of the show, Kate Jobson, this week uh, at her home in Los Angeles. And it was a very good, very good interview. You're about to hear it. You're going to find out it's very good. I don't have to tell you. Just listen. Uh, and I wanted to put it up before the show closed. So, um, check out Second Skin, uh, because this is your last opportunity to do so. But before we get into this interview, and before I set it up just a slightly bit more, uh, it's time for the part that we all know as news and notes. Let's do it. All right. First up, uh, a very special message from Sam Roberts of Indicade. I'm just going to read this. I'm hoping to get some escape rooms and immersive performance pieces submitted to Indicade this year, and I was wondering if you could plug submissions on the podcast slash in the newsletter. And for folks that can't pay the submission fee, they can use the scholarships button in the submission application or email me, sam at indicade.com. Well, no, Sam, I'm not. Oh, wait, I just did. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to plug submissions for Indicate. Look, if you don't know what Indicate is, one, it means you haven't listened to the episode where we had Sam on the show. So go back and listen to that episode. Two, you should check it out uh, when you get the opportunity. Uh, you have many opportunities, actually. The main festival is in October in Culver City here in California. It is the International Festival of Independent Games. Um it's not just video games, it's not just VR, it's not just board games, it's not just card games, it's not just weird live action installation pieces. It is all of this and more. Uh, Indicate is one of the highlights of my year every year. Uh, it's always so much fun to see it pop off. Sam is fantastic. Uh, there's an instance of it that happens in New York, Indicate East. There's an instance of it that happens at E3, which is a big video game trade show here in LA. It just keeps getting bigger all the time. The late submission deadline is June 1st. Uh, I just saw that like yesterday. And if you have issues with uh, getting a submission fee together, like Sam says, there's scholarship op options and you can write him because he really wants to get this, this stuff, this stuff, the things that you do into his festival. So check it out. Uh, and I, I'm really excited about the prospect of there being more immersive pieces at Indicade and that the crossover of games and this type of theater, this type of experience design continues aggressively. Moving on, uh, let's go to Las Vegas. Las Vegas, where there is an immersive theater show. Did I just say immersive theater show? Jeez, what is wrong with me? Um, there is a show at the bar called The Velveteen Rabbit. It is called The Cat's Meow, and it's from Table 8 Productions, who've been doing some interesting work in Vegas. This one is about uh, William Randolph Hearst's yacht uh, and a mystery that unfolds there. There are love triangles. There are jazz age Hollywood icons, and the bar is transformed into the yacht for the duration of the show. 
uh, the two Mondays it is running. Uh, and that includes uh, the 16th and the 23rd, which are coming up after this weekend. So check that out if you're in Vegas. And let me know how it is, because I'm not going to be able to get out there. It's not a far drive, but I kind of got this job thing that I do and sort of need to be around for that. Big news in San Francisco, the Speakeasy. Now, this is not the Speakeasy Society. This is Boxcar Theater, who have a show called The Speakeasy. It was a big hit in 2014, and then they lost their lease on their space. Well, they are coming back with a vengeance, according to the news item I read today, which I put into our Twitter feed. They've got a 9,000-square-foot space. There's like $2 million, apparently, have been sunk into it. This is an installation now. Two bars. I can't wait. Opens up in August, tickets on sale in June. This is going to be hopefully a really, really big deal in San Francisco, a really big deal for the West Coast and having a permanent venue pop up. Well, you can't say pop up, uh, but a permanent venue be the focus for this kind of work. I'm just excited. You know I'm going to be at the show when it appears. Check out the San Francisco newsletter that Albert put out this week in order to find the links to get to it. And hey, field trip everybody here in LA? Let's talk about that. All right. Uh, speaking of the San Francisco newsletter, Albert put up a brief review of the two-bit circus story room that's at the Dave and Buster's in Milpitas. Uh, we love the guys at two-bit circus. Um, what's kind of fun is like Albert, Albert doesn't know them. So like I can send Albert off to go review something and I'm like, oh, hey, you know, like I'm not like, you know, talking about my friend's stuff. Um, it's, uh, I want to go check it out next time I'm at home. Uh, Albert has like a short write-up. We also probably going to get over into the medium uh, piece, medium piece, the medium collection very soon. This is the third time I've done the opening of the show, guys. I just want you to know. So if I get a little punchy, it won't seem any different than normal. Uh, here in Los Angeles, the day shall declare its run is in full effect. The premiere was this week. Um, you should check it out. If you didn't get a chance to check it out before, ran into some folks last night uh, who were at uh, the show uh, who I've never gotten to meet in person. I've been to their shows, but haven't met in person yet. That was really fun. Um, also fun, if you're around on the weekend and you're looking for some late night eats, they're doing barbecue after 10 o'clock at night down there in the Arts District at the Paradise Bar, which they've built uh, in the back of The Day Shall Declare It. And if enough people show up all the time, they're going to have a jazz band every night. That's the way it was last night. It was awesome. It was really cool. Check out the pictures online. Um, so yeah, a little destination. A little, a little touch of what it's like to have a permanent installation in a place uh, where there's immersive theater happening. Jeez, maybe that's just the way this is gonna is going to work. Maybe it's the way it's supposed to work. Maybe I need people with deep pockets to throw a bunch of money at me. And um, anyway, let's get out of the fantasy realm. Let's talk about what's actually happening. In June, Hollywood Fringe Festival is coming back with uh, multiple immersive pieces. Uh, I've seen four pieces that say they're going to be immersive, at three of which I actually trust. Hey, you know me. I'm skeptical. Uh, the Truth, which you can find listed in the newsletter. ABC Project, which is going to have a GoFundMe coming up soon. That's from Annie Lesser, who did Getting to Know You last year. Uh, she's got a whole ambitious alphabet-themed uh, 26 pieces she wants to do, and it kicks off at Fringe. Uh, that's really exciting. Uh, there's another piece uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment. It's like a video game uh, theater piece. Uh, the description sounds like something belongs in Indiecade. And uh, I'm just excited to check that out when it arrives at The Fringe, which is going to be in June. June's going to be a wonderfully busy month here. Um, 
yeah, nothing more to say that about LA. New York, Zay put out a new issue this week. He's got plenty of notes there for you to check out. Uh, I want to kind of push forward since it's the third time I did this. Um, with the next one, this one's this one's important. It's a Patreon shout out. Don't turn off the podcast. Come on, look, um, this show exists, like literally exists, because enough of you stepped up and said we were going to do Patreon. We're going to back it. I want to make this work more and more the center of of my extracurricular activities. One day it'd be nice for it to just be all I did. That's that's the dream. Don't talk about it a lot, but you know it's true. Um, so when someone jumps in and comes in at the $5 level, which is what foolish people who are a London-based group who've been in the immersive scene since 1989, when they come in, drop at the $5 level, uh, that means that means the world to me. I mean, I'm not talking about a lot of money here, people. I'm talking about $5 a month, which adds up to me, but to you, hey, that's that's like two two lattes at a at a cafe in 1996 so it's not even it's i mean it's 96 money folks so thank you foolish people you can find them at foolish people on twitter uh follow their account if you want to get a nice big broad sense of what's going on out there in the world i try and retweet them on twitter uh, when i can uh, when my attention does not waver for those of you who are patreon backers and i encourage all of you to become patreon backers even at the dollar a month level um i'm going to be putting together a survey soon there's some structural stuff that I'm looking at doing, and I want to feel you guys out in terms of um, what you'd like to see, what you're comfortable with, um, and some of the vision going forward. So look for that next week. There. Gave myself a deadline. Now it's going to happen, I hope. Okay. Uh, next week's episode may be after dark, but next week's episode is going to be episode 49, which would mean if I held it one more week, we'd be at episode 50, which seems appropriate. So don't know what's going to be next week yet. But what I do know is that this week's episode with Kate Jobson, who is the director of Second Skin, is wonderful. I did not know what our conversation was going to be like because Kate and I have never talked before what you're about to hear. And it turns out that it's wonderful. And we know people in common. And after we turned the microphone off, we found out we know more people in common. Shock. This is a really theater-centric episode, I just want to point out. Uh, I loved it for that. It's been a while since I've done a theater-centric episode. We get um, we get philosophical on a lot of stuff. You know, we look, any conversation in which you get some theater going on and then we manage to, like, mention Lemonade, um, hey, you know we're going some interesting places. So I hope you enjoy this. And I hope it makes you think, and I hope it makes you want to talk back to me, and we will uh, tell you how to do that after this. Uh, this being the show. For those who haven't seen or don't get a chance to see the show, give us the kind of rundown on, on Second Skin. Well, the little pitch I like to give for Second Skin is that it's a ghost story based on an Irish myth. Um, the longer version of that is that it looks at the complexities of how, when we hold secrets, how those manifest as ghosts in our real life, and mm. how that happens between mothers and daughters, and the ripple effects of that. So that's the, that's the larger, more philosophical version. But it takes place on the beach in Santa Monica at sunset, and it's timed with the sunset. So as the story gets darker, the world gets darker. 
And we started it in San Diego, toured it up to Santa Barbara, and then are doing a three-week run here in Santa Monica. Now, what when the the play was being formed in the first place, mm-hmm. and and this is a tr- and this is a traditional play insofar as it was it was written and not devised. Yeah. If I'm if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, was it always planned to be a site-specific piece, or is this something you're shaking your head no? So, like, <laughs> this is something this is something you brought to it, or the production? Yeah. Department? So this is something that um, so Kristen and I went to graduate schools together, and we have done devised pieces together, which is how we first started collaborating. Was we did a devised site-specific, well, really immersive version of Hamlet about Ophelia for the La Jolla Playhouse Without Walls Festival in 2013. So that's how we started working together. And um, she, this was the, when I read this, it, to me it's much more of a story than a, a traditional way you look at a play. So yeah. it reminded me that it needed that intimacy of being around a campfire, being in a circle, and having that way of how when you're with close friends you tell things you might not necessarily tell in other instances or places. Mm. And then to me, I love pieces that evoke nature in some way. I grew up in a really rural area. I grew up in the mountains. And my two favorite places in the world are on the top of the mountain and by the ocean. So this, to me, was a great way to really make the ocean a character in the piece. And it had that opportunity to do it. So I don't know if I would do it in a theater. Maybe, you know. Mm. But for me, now, having done it here, I, I... they are inextricable to me yeah. of having the location and the story together. Yeah. Um, that was that was something that really struck me as the piece moved on was it's the funny thing about site specific work in general, which is that it on one level, it's sort of a cheat, it's a hack. It yeah. it provides you with an unlimited production budget in a certain way, right? Yeah. You can't buy a sunset. You cannot buy a sunset. Oh, oh but people have tried, but like, <laughs> yeah. but you can't really buy a sunset. Although it also sets you up uh, in competition with nature. Mm-hmm. But like once, once night had fallen, um, and maybe you can talk a little about this because this is this is the thing that was interesting to me. Like once it had gotten dark, it gotten dark, it gotten cold. The triptych started to move on, and the way the design of the space mm-hmm. of, of that that we occupied worked, and like the little pop-up lights which are being used to sort of generate the glow that you'd get from a campfire. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a question at the end of this statement? Well, <laughs> the statement is. I was impressed by that. I was impressed by the way that the that the, the process moved on mm-hmm. in there. Like as darkness took over, the way light became like a, a scarcer resource, and then you got to start playing with light. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that shift, that 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 dynamic from sunset and light, and basically the you know nature's calling the shots. To in darkness, you have this ability to start messing around with people in a way that that we don't otherwise because there were things that were so effectively spooky mm-hmm. in what you did thanks to the natural darkness of the beach and i guess so that and then just maybe the general framing sorry everybody i just got off work <laughs> um the general fr- and i haven't talked to human beings all day long you can tell um just the general framing of of the challenges of working on a beach because it's it's far from a neutral space. It is not a blank space at all. No. So going to your original, um, I 
it's interesting now thinking maybe what I would do differently going forward too as well. Mm. But what is fun is that the sunset gets later and later and later as our run has gone on too. Yeah, yeah. So the timing of it has been different every location and whether it sets over a mountain, whether it sets over the ocean, whether it sets over a cliff face like it did in Santa Barbara, mm. it all creates different effects. Yeah. And um, it also creates different focus as you said like you, you know and I, you mentioned before that the first section is kind of in competition with the sunset but if it wasn't there at all you wouldn't feel the effect of its absence mm. so if we had started when it was entirely in dark darkness there wouldn't be this feeling of the world getting smaller around you yeah. as the story expands yeah. so that kind of dramatic tension so there's like a crossfade yeah so yeah. it's like a crossfade of the world and yeah. so there's certain things you have to sacrifice for getting that same world of this feeling of like okay now we're here and there's birds and there's world and there's planes and everything to the point where you feel like you're huddling alone on this beach yeah. and things can come and things weird things have happened on that beach while we've been rehearsing there was one night we found an altar to a dead person 50 feet away from us and we didn't know we didn't see anyone set it up it wasn't there before sunset and it had Whoa. a hat with a heart-shaped rock and then this piece of paper torn from a book that said i believe in ghosts oh my god and so we had a real that was a moment you know i don't actually believe did in we, real ghosts did one of your friends prank you no it was a moment Ooh. for a very practical person i had a moment <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's always the best feeling a little creeped out but um what what I liked about being able to have the large palette of an entire beach is that you can do things that are kind of cinematic. Yeah. Um, you can have those really distant shots. You can have sort of mm. swooping images. You can have... And with the darkness, I can focus it more. So bringing a single lantern out, it makes you realize how little light you actually need, which is always something... In, even when I'm working in theater... You, I, I don't try to flood a stage with light. I try to make sure it's very specifically lighting a moment, not yeah. a space. Yeah. And so for this, we could control that of just like this lantern moving in the distance could be a really beautiful thing and yeah. a very simple thing with the absence of anything else. Or depending on where you were sitting, you might see the pier behind you, you know, a mile away or however far it is, and you feel lonely yeah. because you're in this darkness and here's this pier where you imagine people are having fun and laughing and you're in this darkness and there's nothing. So I, that, I, we use that very specifically in each location we use that differently. But um, then the beach is you know, it, you can't it, you can't lie as much on the beach, and sometimes you can in the stage because you don't have tricks to play with. Right. Like you have to be very honest. And there's certain things that we tried that we had to cut. We were like, this doesn't work on a beach. It just is too self-aware, so and too hyper theatrical in a way that didn't work in other things. Like there were times we were trying to like tell stories with the sand, mm. and that didn't work as well as using the sand as a more tangible physical object as sand is. And you could use it, you know, like we threw sand and we pulled sand and you can use it, but you'd be very careful. Yeah. It's very delicate with how we could actually, it made us be delicate, which is, it was very challenging and beautiful. So. Yeah, that's, that's, Interesting because I can see the instinct to want to like oh we can start start messing with the materials that are here yeah but because this is one thing that's that's really interesting about site specific pieces when you don't have some kind of natural amphitheater set up it's mm -hmm. like everyone's on the same level 
Exactly. And once you're on the same level, and if you're seeding people, then they're also like, they're a little bit underneath the actors. Yeah. Right? So you get this weird sense of a raised stage, even though you, you, you're still on the floor. Yeah. And you get into this mode where you're, you can't really run up into the symbolic part of of acting like the farther away you move from naturalism in your staging like the harder it is to like hold on unless you've really prepped people with that in the story like you've slid into it and that's what we could do with the light a little bit and and there's already so much symbolism and imagery in the space itself like the ocean is death is there and present and i don't have to do that. All I have to do is have them go near the ocean and everyone's already freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, is she actually going to jump in? She's a mic. She's not actually going to jump in. Yeah. Is she? But you have that moment. Yeah. Or at least I have that moment. <laughs> and that's when it came from was in the rehearsal process, the actor running. And I'm like, is she actually, it's really cold. I'm going to, am I going to have to go save her? And I was like, that's great. I'm terrified. They're going to be terrified too. Yeah. So I threw it in. Yeah. And. Oh, good. Cause it worked. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because you don't know. And, and it's, it's, you know, and those are the things I try and find are the things that actually scare me not like intellectually scare me right. or or make me feel uncomfortable but in the, you know there's a difference between feeling confused and that good good uncomfort that helps you change or open your mind or expand but um the lights were great because you can use them you can use them the way that storytellers use them mm. you know so she she just she uses them as um to make a sandcastle and she uses them to to pick up goods and carry them but I would do that same thing when I'm telling a story to you sitting here yeah. as a way to illustrate things. But yet at the same time, you do it naturally, but then through it, it creates this other beautiful things that we're not having to force at you, but all of a sudden you have a castle of light yeah. and what that means and the metaphors behind what that can be and what that is when that's destroyed yeah. versus if it was any other object. So there's ways in having very little that allows those little things to mean more. So... Talk to me a little about this idea of it being more storytelling than a play, because yeah. I'm I'm one of the things that was interesting when when on my recent New York trip was some of the encounters I had in in the immersive pieces. I felt like the storytelling bits worked really well mm-hmm. to create a sense of connection between mm-hmm. myself and the performers. Mm-hmm. One that started to dissolve. I mean, not for everybody, but like in, in skilled hands, it starts to dissolve the feeling that you're watching a performance and yeah. you get into the mode of, oh, I'm being told a story, much the same way that we would tell a story for friends. Exactly. And that's that's something we worked very hard to try and create within this uh, because I think that's how, you know, often I'll see monologue pieces and it's sort of, there's a way that the actors will distance you from it by trying to like take on each of the characters and pretend you're not there, like create a fourth wall and they're living within it. Yeah. But for this, I think if you let go of that, the audience follows you. You don't need to do it any more than I would telling you a story for people to follow you, but it makes me realize you're another real person there mm. and your story is actually real. Like I would feel so much more pity for someone who that seems real to me, who I know whose mother is dying or who is, you know, lost someone in their life than if 
I think it's an actor portraying that. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's why I always laugh at it in the ads where they say, uh, real people, not actors, yeah. you know? Where you're like, like actors aren't real people, okay. Well, there's but, that, or, or when you recognize one of your friends in that commercial, yeah. and you're like, yeah, they're a real person, I know them, they're an actor. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so it's, and, and that's, but ultimately we sometimes don't give actors the status of real people. Right. And for me, what they do is you have to find that, it's tough that find that blend between what your uh, your life and theirs, yeah. and that's when we believe you, and that's that to me is and that's like, I essential. Mean, I mean that that's always to me when I was when I was when I was young and and I don't want to say naive, but let's say idealistic, and <laughs> uh, and was chasing acting. For me, it was always about. Not in the pretentious way, trying to find the truth of the moment, but yeah. like trying to chase the thing, like to create the moment itself. Yeah, you know, to find to find something where it was it was honest. It yeah. was coming from somewhere that emotionally had the weight of reality, and and that could be taking place because of something that you're, you know method-wise digging out of yourself or it could be because you know two people are 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 just committed to the moment as it is existing right then and there and so it's like oh yeah that just happened and you walk away and you can be like either hating each other or loving each other because like yeah yeah and i do believe in the ability so for me it's it's not that you have to i'm not full you know i don't actually ascribe to the method in that you have to have experienced everything but you have to if you haven't experienced everything you have to have an imagination that is powerful enough to make you believe it's real so you have to be very good at like getting inside that and and having such a huge sense of empathy and so when I teach acting that's something I often work on of like where is that intersection between reality and imagination Mm. and how do you foster that um and find that within it and it's you know it's like I I'm a you know, a woman, but I could, I can empathize with Hamlet. I'm not a man. I haven't gone through that. I haven't lost my father, but you know, that's why one, sometimes it's harder for me to go like, I have to have lived everything. I'm like, no, we, we humans have more capacity than that. But I also, then there's the other end of that where then it can flip over into like, I am emoting this and I feel so good emoting this, which isn't, it excludes us as an audience, I think. And it's all about the actors and experience and what I'm feeling in this moment is more valuable than your experience. Mm. And that's, that's when it flips to the dark side, if you would. <laughs> for me, of, uh, for, and that's what I loved about what, going back to your idea of storytelling. To me, storytelling is an exchange. Mm. And really, your experience, you, the person I'm telling, is more important than mine because I've lived it. It's my memories. It's the past. Yeah. I'm not. No need to relive it for you. Yeah. I need you to understand what I've experienced. Yeah. I'm not. I don't have to like show it to you. Yeah. So that's when it works the best. And then there's times like when we are talking about things that are important to us, we do get emotional. It does overtake us. Yeah. But ultimately, it's only as important as what you, the person sitting in front of me, can understand. And that's so. That's to me the shift of focus in storytelling versus in. When you have a fourth wall in acting, it's the two characters there, and it can be interesting. And I love that. You know, don't yeah. get me wrong; I do a lot of fourth wall stuff. But uh, it's what I love. Shakespeare can breaks that and goes back and forth, which is another reason I like messing with his stuff because he he's aware that you're always performing. Or Beckett, if you're you're they're always aware they're performing in some yeah. at some level. They know they know that it lands in the ear of the audience. Yeah. 
right? Or that lands in the imagination of the audience. Like yeah. back, back when back when I was teaching camp summer camp style, I never talk about this on the podcast. It's funny, um, summer camp style to um, to high school students, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. That sentence was done out of order. Apologies. But you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> You're teaching um, Shakespeare. Summer it's a summer camp to high school students. Yes. Yes, ladies and professional writer. Um, this is why we edit things or have second drafts. Um, I would try and get the kids to like see what it was that they that the, their speech was about. Yeah. And like project it psychically if they would. Not really, but yeah. like like in their imagination, like just like try and make the people sitting here see what you see. Yeah. Right. Like this, there's this thing in you. You got to get it out, and you want to evoke those images in them. You're projecting from your mind onto the screen of their mind. And for me, when I used to perform Shakespeare, um, I would, and, and this is what I was telling the actors in Second Skin as well to do, is you memorize images. Mm, and then you, yeah. what, instead of words, and then what you do is you, you realize, okay, well that image wasn't quite right for this word, memorize a new image, get a new image in your head. So when I'm performing it, I'm not reciting. I am, I'm picturing things and then describing what is I'm experiencing. So it's always more active because I'm having to find the words in the moment to picture what uh, the memories that I've memorized. Do you know about the art of memory? No. Okay, so there's, there's an academic text by Francis Yates, who is a, who's a Bruno scholar, of mm-hmm. all things, um, that's about this practice, which was in classical times, called the Ars Memoria. Have you ever watched Sherlock? Yeah. Okay, so you know when he goes into his memory palace? Yeah. Right? That's based on a real thing. Like, from, like, Roman oratory times and, like, up through most of the classical time, pretty much until the printing press took over. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what the great orators did. They built palaces in their minds or theaters in their mind. For the the Roman orators, it was, you know, the... The, the forum mm-hmm. they built the forum and then for like actors like even some of the there's some some evidence out there that in like renaissance times the actors would memorize a theater like memorize the globe mm-hmm. and they would take images for the speech and place them in the physicality of that spot and yeah. then re-evoke them back back into their brain so when you're talking about you know get an image and then use that to like bring the speech up like that's that was the classical thing. That's what everyone was taught how to do. And it's this yeah. sort of lost art. And that's something that if I was going to, you know, add something to the theater training world, that's that's one of the things that I would like to bring back because I feel like it you I can tell when somebody's memorized something. I can hear oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and you can hear oh, you can hear the way that rhythm works, or you can hear when someone's reading. Like they're all like yeah. memorized speech and re- read speech. So, and I used to teach public speaking uh, at, at UC San Diego, and we I didn't allow our students to memorize. They had to work from an outline, and so they had to improvise every time within their outline. Mm. So I never wanted to them to say exactly the same thing each time, unless it was the perfect words for that instance or a quote. Yeah, you know, and then they could read their quotes or yeah. whatever that is. But it meant that they had to communicate to us. They had to generate it in the moment every time, and then because if you don't, if you're just reciting something from the past, it's dead. And theater has to be living art. Yes, and it's the only thing that we offer to this world that the million other forms of entertainment aren't already doing. Mm-hmm. It's an art form that's created instantly in front of you versus sculpture, which the art had happened at it. And it passed, and then it's the only what your experience with it is the living art. And for right. theater, it's happening in front of you. So the script you get is dead. The only thing that's living is what translates into performance. As I said, what translates 
to you. So if you're if you're going from something that's dead, like something that's memorized that you're just reciting, you're not actually translating it to the present moment, to the person that's in front of me at all. So I, that's something that you know my mentor in graduate school calls a lot of theater, especially American theater, is very judgmental literature, literature, <laughs> and so and it, you know and I love that though I, I do yeah and which is ironic is like second skin that's why I say it's a story because right. it, it, it but I was like well let's lean into that like if it's a, if it's literature if it's this great story let's make it a story and mm. that's the origin of theater anyway yeah. is storytelling so let's go back. Yeah. to that to just like an actor and an audience and what is that and how does that move and so to me it was it was that you know experimenting with that and and then seeing where it goes because it's nice to just sometimes be able to play with simple things versus I do a lot of epic stuff usually my projects take about two years to do minimum and so this one was a nice simple one that I can do to explore that element yeah and the nature and how those two things intersect so I want to get uh Irish myth wonky for a second. I apologize <laughs> to everyone on the podcast because this is not their bag. It is only mine. So, um, I mean, first, how early in the development of the piece did you did you come in? Was it playfully formed? But it had. Uh, I was fully formed by the time I came in, mm-hmm. um, which is different than how I normally work. Um, but uh, because I knew Kristen well, and so. She wrote this for her thesis from graduate school. Mm. And I'd read an early, early draft of it when she was first writing it, but then I was, I left. And so, um, I, but it always stuck with me. And then when I got the idea of doing it on the beach, I called her up and I'm like, can I read what what you've done with this now? And so she had started with the myth. So I know that was in terms for her, one of the origins of working on this piece was starting from this. Mm-hmm. Um, myth and then developing it further and how how deep did you find yourself going down the the silky seal hole uh, <laughs> it's not a rabbit hole uh, like in order to like kind of get yourself grounded into that mythology because it's not it's related in some ways to like mermaid mythology but it's definitely in that Irish tradition it's an Irish fairy yeah. tale and like the fairy tales of Ireland are the most fairy of fairy tales yeah. right uh, and, and the Selkie myth in particular, I mean, it's it's skin changers and it's the dead and it's mermaids and it's the sea and it's it's such a you can just you can smell that this was a fishing people yeah. who like generated this story and yet at the same time because of the fact that it's Irish you start to wonder well is it a story or is there like something. But that's that's my side. Of it, yeah, because there's all the tall tales and yeah. elements that kind of develop up around that. And yeah. my, so I'm, I'm I'm like one side of my family is Irish, and the other my mother's full Swedish. Mm. So, but we're from uh, my mom's family is of island people, and they're from islands in between, pretty far away from mainland Sweden and Finland. And so for me, growing up like with the that kind of imagery and lore too is. You know, it's similar, and yeah. and that idea of like things just happen. Yeah. <laughs> and so I liked it because of that. And then we did go fairly deep. I made you know all the actors do their due diligence of research, and of course that there's some beautiful films out there too that aren't so painful to watch, like uh, Secret of Roninish and The Song of the Sea. Yeah. And, and there's other weird ones. Um, Roninish is uh, uh, the soundtrack to that was a favorite. For yeah. Years. Yeah. And uh, there's this other one called. Uh, hometown hero or something like that that's another one and there's another one with colin uh farrell 
so there's a bunch of them that have like translated into different ways. But what I like is that Song of the Sea went a little different with it, but normally it's a story about a man and a woman. Mm. So normally it's a love story. Right. And I like that this kept it within women, within a family, yeah. and what that means and what, what is familial love and what is, you know, how is that different than this kind of covetous, possessive, I must, a man must possess a woman yeah. and a woman breaks his heart yeah. traditional story. And so I like that that complicated it, modernized it, made it more relatable to me. Yeah. And then also, we've had a lot of people come see the show and it's the same thing that they'll be like, yeah, I mean, it makes me want to call my sister or it makes me want to talk to my mom again or, you know, it, it, it starts hitting those points or, you know, there was like, a, there was a teenage boy who came and, and, um, like totally like explained to his mom what the Selkie was feeling, like why she felt excluded mm. and was able to like lay that out for her entirely. And so it's interesting where it hits people in different stages of their lives yeah. in different ways yeah. and who people relate to differently depending on where they are in their lives and their relationships. Well, and that, and what's, what's interesting without spoiling, trying to avoid spoiling it, but like, yeah. There, there's something of the energy of the classical Norn cycle of, you know, maiden mother crone. It's yeah. not quite there entirely, but like one of the characters kind of moves between two of those poles mm -hmm. and then two of two of the characters one of the characters one, is fully, one does all three. One does all it's true, one does all three. Uh one I feel like one does yeah, one does all three. One stays pretty firmly in maiden yeah. and then the other stays goes maiden with a little bit of mother into it yeah. just like a little bit but like but for reasons yeah he never gets to quite get there yeah it's hard to talk spoilery <laughs> ways, i like. know it is it's, it is tough and um but it, there's it, it definitely goes into those and then and i think a lot of some of the interesting stuff that is going is talking about that like um Death Play, which they just did at Circle X, where I work, too. Um, Lisa Dring is a one-woman piece that was it's really crazily tied into this because it was about it was a real-life story about the death of her grandmother and her mother and her mm. father within the course of three years. Oh, yes. And she's not 30 yet. So so talking about that, yeah. and then she brought up this maiden mother crone and brought a lot of like imagery of death from other cultures and like talked about that and, she, and about her Japanese-American identity and how that, you know, how losing when you lose your elders yeah how do you know your own cultural identity yeah so that's what was interesting about this irish identity and this irish myth which is not you know it's subtly woven in there you know like we don't like their names are vaguely irish and they you know there's but it's we keep it you know they speak like americans you know yeah. so it's more like this subtle foundation um and, and so it was interesting just the resonances of that and lisa got really into the mother maiden crone and how Crones get erased from our society, yeah. Um, both in media and in the world, and and so it was it was interesting working on both these pieces at the same time in different capacities and looking at how I think it's really important to have to for us not to be afraid of death, and mm. I think and that's often quoted in happiness of like the closer relationship we have to death and the healthier relationship we have to death, the happier we are. And I think that's what this play ultimately is about, is about, I think, what ghosts are in our world in a tangible way, are our inability to face death and the things that we cling on to, our mm. inability to let go of those who have passed. And so we make them ghosts in ourselves, through our guilt, through our regret, through whatever it is. We make them real because we hold on to them. 
you know, they are as real as if they were standing there because they get in our bodies. They make us sick. They make us worried. They make us un- being able to con- not be able to connect with people in our own lives. So to me, that's where ghosts are real mm. and might as well be somebody walking around your house yeah. because they have real physical impacts upon your entire life. And so I think this play is about if we... And that then they, they ripple through generations. So if we want to end that curse, as it were, yeah, we have to accept that people go, they yeah. die. We will do awful things in our lives, and if we don't forgive ourselves for them, they will sit there and eat away at us. Yeah. So no, there's there's a real there's a real toxicity in our our culture, born out of real pain, uh, that is that is a, rooted in the inability to let go of of the sins of the past, the harms of the past. Yeah. And and it is something that every person has to find their path through. And simple denial wouldn't do it. Sometimes no. I play this like mental game of like, what would happen if we just all agreed that for the next generation, we would just not tell them what happened. Just like erase the history of the world. And just try and like start anew, um, and create tr- a new one, yeah. right? And the truth is, like, shit would come out because, like, truth outs. You know, yeah. There's no way we, you could not keep it. It'd be interesting. It'd be like, it was like, not that I love this movie, but like the M, was it M Night Shyamalan's The Village? You know, where they kind of oh, did that. They yeah. like separate themselves and try and create a new society. But yeah. you can't escape your own humanness. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't escape your own humanness, and you can't you can't escape what's really going on. Yeah. Right? So it would be something like that, but. But that's but therein lies the lesson, right? Is like, well, you can't do that, so you must find your way through. Yeah. And it's it's really I mean, look, the idea of a blood debt that never gets paid, you know, yeah. is something that's known to human societies and it drives generations yeah. and creates madness and sickness and going forth. And that that's at a cultural scale of a ghost. Yeah, exactly. You know, stalking us forever. Yeah, unless uh, you find some way of healing that, making, I mean, whether it is making amends or giving them peace or, you know, and that's to me, as you said, like the cultural scale of yeah. what happens when there's violence for generations yeah. and what that means or, or trauma for generations through... And anything. I think you said something really important there, like the idea of making amends, right? Yeah. Like some... Like, it, it has to be, it, it's not, it would not exist if it was happening in a vacuum. There's always yeah. some sort of relationship that's constantly going on. Like, in this yeah. play, you know, there's still a relationship that's going on. There's multiple relationships mm-hmm. going on that are affected by this curse. And it's yeah. only it's only by reconciling the core wound that anyone's able to move forward. It's, and the first point to reconciling that is saying that it exists. Yeah. Like that's sort of what relieves it ultimately is just you have to. And that's why often in, you know, magic and other things like that. And I was an anthropology major and undergraduate, so I get into this stuff a lot. Of like, If you name something, that's power. Right. Over in a lot of different cultural forms of magic is like, and a lot of our fantasy novels or whatever it's oh, yeah. naming something gives it power because it or takes power away and i think that is true and it's something to me that's the first step to you know you can't heal something if you don't know it's a problem or even just like simply like you know when we're taught like problem solvings in in companies or business it's like well identify the problem first and then find this you know like yeah. you can't do anything unless you've identified the issue and in our personal lives it's so hard and especially something that's traumatic and um, and it's interesting with my um, so my 
I look at my grandmother a lot as sort of a, a model for how you accept death because she's had four husbands die in her life. And she says, I've been happy my entire life. And I'm like, wow, are you in denial? But no, she, it's the opposite of like, she doesn't hide anything. Mm. Like she doesn't, she's not ashamed of it. She doesn't carry that bag around. She doesn't, she doesn't feel guilty about any of it anymore. You know, like she's moved beyond all that. And that to me is something that, you know, I'm not there yet, but I would love to be at some point in my life to just not carry that shame around and that baggage and being able to say, like, this is the problem. Let's not add, you know, the other in, in Buddhism, there's often a thing where they say that, you know, someone walks by on the street and they insult you. But then for the next day, you're playing it back in your head. I could have said this and I could have said mm. that. And you're saying, like, well, you're helping your enemy. They hurt you once. You're hurting yourself a hundred times afterwards mm. by carrying it with you. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So to me, that's sort of, <laughs> you know, you can just take the play as a story or for me, having worked on it for months now, it, 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 it brings up all these other elements of, you know, how is it, how do we... It's okay. These other elements <laughs> of like how you move on and how you, how you continue to live after trauma. Let me move us from the specific thematic into the sort of more general in the process. Mm-hmm. And how did you get, you, you, you did a piece you mentioned for WOW back mm-hmm. in 2013. So like what led you into the realm of site-specific and immersive? And then what, what's a, what attracts you to working in this fashion? Um, I've, I mean, I've been doing site-specific stuff since college. And part of it came just because I like the outdoors better than being in a dark theater. Um, <laughs> to Ain't be nothing honest, wrong with that. I know. No, um, no. Is that I just I like that a lot better. Part of it was financial back then, you know. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> so we would do pieces. I used to do pieces in this grove at Berkeley, and and um, work in that way. It was oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the grove either, but it's. It's, it's is it on of, campus? Yeah, it's on campus. There was just, I mean, there's this one eucalyptus grove that then sort of fed into some redwood trees that was by a creek. Oh yeah, like down down not was, far from not far from downtown. Yeah, it was like yeah. it was more it was more uh, westward on campus. Yeah. I can't remember the exact name of it. Dwinell, I, I think it was next to Dwinell. I think it might be, it might be next to Dwinell Hall. I know I think it's, I know exactly which one you're you're talking about because it's it's just steps away from getting to like center street like center street leads right up into it right i think so I'd spend, yeah. I, it's, I, I spent I, so many I years up, there i grew I up can't. there so it's like the back i used to feed squirrels right there <laughs> there's all so the time. many squirrels the squirrels are vicious yeah yeah yes oh, they're not vicious they're like they're no, my they're friends like, they like so. dig into your bag They'll well that's because i feed them all the time yeah. so it's my fault i'm sorry i know and all the students they too. would crawl up on me and they would just give them <laughs> a little food and they'd run away with a peanut you know like <laughs> something common so. but um yeah it's so funny i know like, I, I, feel so I, know, so, I feel I, so old i can't remember any of the names <laughs> or anything anymore i was like i spent years there Don't worry about um but uh yeah so i used to do things there um i did a little bit even i mean kind of in high school somewhat but um i i come from both dance and theater too mm. and so dance has a lot more of the background of how we interact with the objects around us yeah. and bodies in space yeah. so um, working through that and then well and like I mean dance has so much site specific work and indeed in what we see in immersive theater is driving so much of the conversation yeah you know the big pieces you know 
punch drunk sleep no more third wheel projects then yeah. she fell i mean those are dance theater pieces they are dance first yeah i don't want to say theater second but like the, the primary language is is, is, movement. is movement and not everyone is down with that i see people go into those spaces and like oh i don't connect with it because i'm you know I'm, they're looking for they're looking for text yeah they're looking they're f- for a more narrative experience often. yeah and that's what's interesting for me now moving into it but then i also worked for a touring all-female Shakespeare company for out of out of undergrad that just did the traditional Shakespeare in a park thing mm-hmm. but was that it, women's will yeah women's will I used to be associate artistic director there for a while <laughs> and they gave me my I played Kate and Taming of the Shrew was my first job out of uh, undergrad for them oh, yes. um, but uh, they, they no longer exist unfortunately but I mean I think they serve their the purpose of yeah. sort of opening up women's roles within Shakespeare and making us look differently at yeah. it but at that time, I was sitting there thinking of like how much more you could do with the spaces we were in and sitting there and looking at it. And I actually did some scenic designs for them. But you look at it and you're like, it was this weird little set plopped in this much yeah. vaster landscape. Yeah. And it just felt like I love what they did, but it just felt like it was from another era. Yeah. And there's so much more potential. They like, were they one of the groups who would like go to like John Hinkle Park and like yeah. you they'll hitch a wagon up there and like shotgun players would do that. Sorry, we're getting Bay Area wonky uh, Yeah, and you SF know. Shakes did that. Yeah, they and the Mime the, Troop. Like yeah. they did it in Dolores Park. Yeah. So there was a bunch of us that would do that in the Bay Area. It's yeah. not as big a thing here. I mean, I guess there's, you know, there's two of them, but yeah. there was like four or five of us in the Bay Area that would do that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we would do we would do all that kind of stuff, but it just seemed like why not use what's actually there? Oh yeah. And then um, uh, yeah, and then just looking at more of what it can mean. And um, so I started doing it a little bit more in grad school of just looking at how you can play with distance or play with images mm. and um, interesting classwork sometimes or yeah. just using the actual physical structure of the rooms we're in versus trying to add something that's fake yeah. I was like if you have a real wall it's always better to have a real wall than a wall that can fall over and to pretend <laughs> you know and and it's going a little bit back to like early early directors like like Antoine in France he would drag his mother's furniture he would steal his furniture from his mother's house and put it in there and there was one time he even had rotting meat carcasses on stage because he wanted the flies and he was super extreme but that was like trying to put what site specific theater does into a theater right you know and then um uh, you know and then looking at well what do you do with um with the meanings of the site itself and so that's where mm. a lot of my other graduate school stuff was in image theater which is much more european theater of like how we use symbolism to be subversive so my mentor was under the dictatorship in the Ceausescu dictatorship in romania for Years for his you know whole young adult life, and that's where he grew up doing directing. So for him, theater was life, yeah. which was hard for him. He would get frustrated with us sometimes because we we're like Americans. We're like, there's so much more to life. He's like, it's life or death. Yeah, because it was for him, and you know we got to watch some of the. He's this amazing library of some of the best European productions for the last you know since they've been recording them, and so we got to study all of that and the the power of what images can do to tell stories for languages I don't speak. You know, I speak some, but I don't, like, even then you realize that I don't need to for a lot of those because you can be subversive. Like, he did a Hamlet that was about dictatorship, but is a dictator ever mentioned? You Mm -hmm. know, it was just through images. And they could, and because that's how you got around censorship. Right. And so for us and in our time is that 
now we sort of you go to European theater and if you don't know the codes it just feels distancing because you don't understand what they're referencing right because it's just sort of like I don't that's something's happening but what are they talking about yeah because um, it's cultural it's specific and yeah. to me that's the other thing about site specific of like if you have to have the unique history of a location and the way that humans already interact with that space like the beach like we're used to going and doing things at the beach and there's certain levels of activities that we have that we're primed for when you do there so if you do try and do something that's entirely different than that yeah. for how people normally behave in that space you have to have a really good reason to do that yeah. and um or the history of the space you know of doing things and oh god when when, when a piece of site-specific theater is like seriously like site-specific like yeah. this is the story of this space yeah right you know like then it starts to feel almost like like you're creating a haunting. Yeah. You know, like we're gonna we're gonna call up the ghost from it's it's like a freaking seance. Like yeah. we'll call up the spirits who inhabit it here and we're gonna do it. Yeah. And it can be if executed poorly, it can be ribald in in, in an unintentional sense. It's like yeah. oh, oh, this is like a dumb show. This is this is stupid because like they're pantomiming out the way these people were. But when it's done with that kind of gravity Right when when someone's understanding how to move people in space and create that connection, yeah, and connect to the story and try and be like, you know, this is what was here. This is why this place is the way it is. Yeah, right. Then you've got something super or, magical. Like one of the long term projects I'm working on right now is I hired the playwright Octavio Solis to adapt the Cherry Orchard to my hometown, which is this rural town in. Northern California on the Oregon border that um, has been struggling economically for generations mm -hmm. and it's dying away and Cherry Orchard's about a culture that's dying and what is a more personal thing than this actual physical manifestation of a culture that is struggling to survive and has things you know just like in just like the aristocracy of Russia there's things that need to change and have to change because the world is moving yeah. but then you know what else are you losing what beauty are you losing what cherry orchards are you cutting down mm. by your attempt to move on and change and evolve and for me that's what rural culture is so he's writing an adaptation of that and to me it's not we're going to be doing it site specifically there too but it's also site specifically to the point of the origin of the creation so you're asking about that yeah. like this one goes even one step deeper to the point of like even if we were deciding if we're going to change names or not to like protect identities and other things because it gets really personal but is that um it gets to that point of that scary resonance where you see yourself for the first time like I was just reading a draft of it earlier and I just felt so I like I know things are bad there and then but having him just like recount all the problems you would think they were made up you would think mm. that he was trying to make heightened melodrama right. because it's there's just so much happening and to me that's like how when our uh, that it made me so scared and sad for some even though i this is the whole reason i did the project right. even putting it in the form of art and to me that's what art does best of any form of like make us see something we're familiar with in new eyes and appreciate the full scale of what is happening yeah. in our world. So to me, it's the same principle as staging something somewhere as creating something that combining these two forces that resonate in that way that creates ghosts, yeah. as you say. Yeah. So that's a lot of, a lot of the work I do. I realize like, even if it's not site specific, like I'm going to be doing a 12th night this summer and it's, we wanted it to be site specific. Couldn't get the site. It, that it still carries those same origins of like I think every work 
should be site specific because it has to be referring. You can't pretend something is what it's not. And when, mm. when you do that, even for escapism, like y- you, you're missing an opportunity. So go a little farther there. Even for escapism, you're you're missing an opportunity if you're not resonating with current moments. R- Oh, it's in moments, but not... Thinking about or current sides, places. Or you places. can do places, too, yeah. but I think places and moments are... As you said, like places are what we invest in them. Right. Like Places only mean as much as what our memories and our cultural attitudes and the histories and how we interact with them. That's what they mean. Yeah. Other than that, they're just physical things. Yeah. So it's only what we associate. And that, to me, is the same as, as a cultural moment. So that's what I mean. Yeah, by yeah. No, so, I, I dig. I mean, yeah, now, now you've got me thinking about... Um, God, is it Hurwit? All the Hurwit documentaries. Like, there was one urbanized, and another one. There's like this this trilogy about design, and one of those about the design of cities. Mm-hmm. And this like, and you, I think you can find them all on Netflix, like pretty easily. Um, one's about typography. I think that's where he started. Was one on typography. Like, why am I going to watch something about typography? <laughs> but urbanized. And I think that's the the name of the, the one I'm thinking of. Um, you know, it's about this idea that like, you know everything is designed like Mm -hmm. in cities everything Mm -hmm. around us is a designed space everything that you take for granted is designed it makes me think of people who like really resonate with new york city i was having a conversation with someone the other day about this and they were like i've never lived there but like i feel like i belong there more than any other place right Mm -hmm. like i'm I'm, they were like i'm this part of queens and for some reason i feel at home there it's like hitting some like you know the the irish catholic part of me is like resonating with the space yeah and i started thinking about you know there's there's this point about New York City in that it is had all this time to develop what it means to be a city mm-hmm. and just work at it, work at it, folding it over and over to like, you know, if you are a city person and you arrive in New York City, you feel absolutely at home yeah. because it is the apotheosis of a city. Yeah. And particularly if you've got like Irish Catholic blood, like, well, then there's like, there's hooks into your culture. Like your culture was one of the forces that like, Shaped it. Shaped it. Moved through. Like, yeah. like water through the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Right? And so those those resonances of intentional and unintentional design. Like, even when the, everything's a cluster, there's someone made a choice at some point down the line for a reason about the way every street moves in every city in yeah. America or in the world. Yeah. Um, Sometimes they're a little more intentional and thought through the future more than others. Right. But there was there was a moment where somebody decided this is where this is going to go. Yeah. And what was the moment that created that? Yeah. So everything has its own space or you know resonance. And and the 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 bounding box of a theatrical production, be it you know your Brooksian blank space or something like the McKittrick or yeah. a site specific work where you're, you're going into a place that really exists, is creating a lens to view the space through. Yeah. And what are making those relational choices? Yeah. You know, how are people relating to this space? How are the performers, how are the audience? Nothing is a blank space. Yeah. You know, of like, yes, I love, I love, you know, I love Peter Brook, I love all that stuff, yeah. but nothing is truly a blank space. Yeah. I mean, I guess that also comes from my anthropology background where you're like everyone comes in with bias Mm. and like we all come from where our historical moment is and where you know what we've experienced and you can that doesn't mean that you're stuck there which is part of a lot of the conversations now like you can only talk about these stories because you're there which is but I feel because then I think that means that we get into you know 
tribalism, as it were. Like, we mm. don't connect. And I think as yeah. humans, there's much more that connects us than divides us. Yeah. And so, but you can't ignore where you come from. And But if you pull from it, it can be beautiful. Yeah. You have to recognize your bias. You have to recognize yeah. your history because that way you're able to see that you are wearing lenses. And yeah. if you're seeing that you are wearing lenses, you know how your lenses are distorting what you're seeing, but you know that there's something past your lens to see. Yeah. Drives me one thing that drives me nuts these days, and people can yell at me about this one, is is the arguments over, you know, oh, this piece of culture is not for you. You know, they'll say that about about things. Like I mean, this dropped it like lemonade, you know, Beyonce's thing the other day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, there's you know, from one point of view, correct. Like this, this you know, you watch Lemonade, and you're like, this is a powerful statement where she is she is voicing an experience that you know not everyone has. Yeah. You know, like you have to be rather you know you can be a specific cultural subset, and that's like a you know a black woman. You mm-hmm. know, and as a statement of the struggles, the trials, the tribulations of a black woman in 2016 America, yeah, like. It's in the sense of identity, like that is for, mm-hmm. but it is voice to all. Yeah. And there's this difference between are we there to bear witness to each other? Because mm-hmm. then, then every cultural thing, in a sense, is for all of us. Mm-hmm. Whether it's speaking for us yeah. is the thing. And I think this is one of the problems we have in our culture right now is this confusion between like speaking and hearing. Yeah. You know, like the right to speak versus the right to be heard, the need to be heard versus the need to speak. And like, we don't have language, precise language around it, you know, whether in the law or in our, you know, technological devices or even, you know, in, in, in immersive theater, one of the issues will be people will come to a piece and because it's not sit down in a chair, watch something unfold in front of you, you'll need a frame. And yeah. if you don't come with that frame, if you don't know how to navigate through the space of the piece, you can you can be completely lost and never connect with it. And then I think there's ones, the ones that, again, like I think that's why culture and site specific, you, you have to deal with both of them. If you don't deal with one, you you you're not really dealing with the other. So like there was a piece that I saw here in LA recently where you're going to a dinner party and what's great, like most of us have been to dinner parties. Like we know the rules of it. So there's automatically a comfort that we enter in on because we, we get that much and other things so we can absorb a little bit more because we at least understand the basic rules of the game and knowing what we're playing by because we come in with cultural associations that allow us to know that yeah so i think that sometimes where the same thing when i was talking about of like if you're trying to do something else with a space you can do that and it can be great and you can create great dissonance with it but you have to be really careful about it and it's the same thing to me with the idea of like for a long time there was you know earlier when i was younger there was a lot about cold uh, colorblind casting being a way of uh, but then what you do is that if you're not coming into that being aware that i might have bias then you can do awful things like, oh, look, the only black man in that piece is the villain. You yeah. know, and you're like, well, it was colorblind. He was the best for the role. You're like, well, did you think through of what that means? Yeah. Like, what story are you telling by yeah. making, putting him in that position? Yeah, did you realize how it was going to land? Yeah, and, but at the same time, you're like, well, then do I, I've never cast someone in that. You're like, you do, but you have to understand, you have to be do everything with an awareness and with conversations and have hard conversations. Yeah. And just in the way that I'm in conversation with a space and site-specific work or in conversation with a theater, if I have, 
have a theater space. Yeah. Like you have to be aware and we we can't afford to come in with thinking that everything is a priori, you know, everything because blank. Yeah. Because that's when you you can cause evil through innocence. And not evil, that's being extreme, but you can cause mistakes and you can... Yeah, because it's, it's, it's not malice of forethought, right? To get legalistic, it's not malice, but it's negligence, right? Yeah, it's, it's the negligence. difference. It's the difference between man, between manslaughter, murder one, and murder two. Yeah. Right? And, and these, and there are harms there. Yeah. Right? And there are, some are lesser and some are greater. Um, but if you're continually negligent, if you're like, well, I just don't care, then you're starting to go into like malice. So you're choosing not to care. Yeah. You're choosing, you're choosing to not recognize what the consequences of what you're doing are. Yeah. And for someone who is telling stories, who's looking to connect, who's looking to convey ideas, looking to communicate, to to deny an interest in how something lands is to lie. Yeah. You have to care about how it lands, or you wouldn't open your freaking mouth in the first place yeah or to be or you're not going to land because you're <laughs> because you're working in a bubble yeah you know you're working in this little thing where you're like oh i'm yeah. gonna you know and maybe you'll have your little bubble people but that's not why i do this and perhaps a, a nutshell <laughs> and call it infinite space perhaps you know, you know yeah. like, okay throw it in there yeah mm-hmm. exactly but you know for me what is exciting about it is when we do can touch upon things that are important to us and it's the same thing of like I I used to avoid for a long time because I hated going to theater where it's just like somebody burying their soul forever and ever in a way that was just like all it's anything all about me yeah so I avoided going personal for a really long time yeah. until I had to to be I able to get do, but yeah <laughs> but, but that's what I was talking about before yeah. of like why it's the intersection of truth and imagination of reality and imagination because imagination and form and shape and metaphor and symbolism is how you translate the personal into the universal so it's not just me as this personal thing. This is my story. My story is important and all of you should care about it. It's like, this is my story and this is the larger world that it fits in. And this is how we're all human. And if people get too general, this is the other thing. If like, if I talk about my sorrow in general, then people don't understand. But if I say specifically what's happened to me yeah. and place it in a larger context or use it in a way that is using a metaphor for it, it gives an opening for people to come in to yeah. it. And so for me, I had to like look at like, what communities do I belong to? Like, where do I come from? Who am I? What do I, what do I want to speak about? Not just what do I think I should speak about? What should I be doing? You mm. know, and that's something that often, um, you know, I know artists of color have a lot of conversations about too. Of like, well, because I'm an artist of color, do I have to be representing myself or my the culture that I belong to? Yeah. You know. Or, but if I genuinely want to, you know, then that's a different impulse to be like, what, what am I saying in this world that is actually helping in any way? And what am I being honest about? Because if we're trying to do something that we should, which I tried for a long time, and I'm like, created like things that look great, you know, and they're pretty and I can do that and I can make pretty things. I can make actors act well, but it's only if there's something that I feel like is actually an important message to me with second skin. It's this idea of needing to accept death to me is an important thing that I feel like needs to be told in the world. Um, and then there's other things of like being able to be on a beach, you know, but (laughs) you know, there's, it works on all levels. And to me, that's good theater is that I can be like my favorite, I'm such a weirdo. My favorite play when I was eight years old was Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. 
which I saw at Oregon Shakespeare Festival because I grew up near there when I was a kid with my mom. And my mom loved it because I was an eight-year-old who loved this young woman who was like, what, 14 in the show. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I want to be her. She's so smart. This is so great. And the story was exciting. And there was like dances and candlelight. And I loved that. And I was totally into that. Did I get any of the math that's in that play? No. And you probably didn't get any of the sex that's in the play either, right? I mean, kind of, you know there's tension. Yeah. You don't know what it means, but you get yeah. the tension. You get, And it's so exciting about it. And so to me, that's like the good plays work on the like, an eight-year-old can have an experience. A Someone who's an adult can have another experience. And someone who might be a specialist in that field can have an even deeper experience. Yeah. But if it works on all levels. So you have the entertainment and the... The profound thoughts. So, and that's and that's that's always the the, the thing to chase. And yeah. that's one of the reasons. That's something that makes Arcadia so good, and it's something that makes the theater that resonates with you that lasts. It's chasing that, if nothing else. Yeah, even if we don't, if we, I'd rather chase that and fail, you know, <laughs> yeah. as we always say. And of course, it's hard to know. You're like, oh God, I have to be profound. <laughs> <laughs> How do I dredge up my profundity? Um, but it, 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 it's it's the it's inquisitive nature. It's asking the yeah. question. It's not it's not having to make the statement. And know? it's yeah. it's looking to the origin of what things are. So something that often happens with Shakespeare is like, oh, that's a cool idea. Let's set it here. But what are the plays actually about? And what is it about in our times? And what is the actual location that those should be in or ways that should be told for what it means for us now with the people I'm telling it to? And that's the other thing. We often create in a vacuum. We don't think about who these stories are being told to. Mm. Um, we just, we're like, I want to tell this. And it, you have to have all of it. You have to have who's telling it yeah. is important. Um, how it's being told and who it's being told for. Yeah. And where. Yeah. So if you don't have all those things and if they're in different disjointed places, you're not going to create something that's unified. And I feel like unified and I feel like you have no shot of making something universal Yeah. if you don't have that. There's a paradox there of like you need to kind of connect back to what I was saying uh, in a way that seems contradictory. If you know who you're talking to... Mm-hmm. You actually get a, like a chance to to roll the dice on being universal because mm-hmm. of that that weird trick of specificity mm-hmm. is the skeleton key that unlocks the truth of it. Mm-hmm. If you talk in a general fashion, like oh, this is for everybody, trying to make you know some piece of mass entertainment, yeah, you know, sure, need some popcorn and go and watch, and the things will blow up in front of your face or whatever, yeah. or there'll be like emotional pyrotechnics on a stage, yeah, but it will not it will not resonate because yeah. it didn't. It didn't have the rib cage of people's actual being to yeah. bounce off of and develop tone. Yeah. And from that, you're able to get the sound yeah. out. And it's interesting for, you know, because now with grand making and everything, there's a lot of emphasis on like community work and what communities you're talking to. So that is coming into the conversation a lot. Well, that's good. But it's often coming into the conversation of, I think in a way that makes people think about it (laughs) Um, from people I've worked with in the past, they think about it in a very calculated form of being like, here's this, that's where the money is. Let's put it together. You know, and without actually having any investigation into what an actual real connection is, it's more than just like, you should come see my show. 
Yeah. And and to me, it's like what an actual investment is in a community. And I've done a lot of that work and going back home and doing it in my own hometown makes me realize like what I've been missing and other things like that. The assumptions that I make because they belong to a community, they're all the same. Mm. And going to my hometown, I'm like, I don't know, they're not all the same. They come from a million different opinions, even though like people might look at them and be like, they're rural you know, the rural people, but there's a wide range of education, interests, abilities, understanding, knowledge, all this stuff that comes in that community. Yeah. And so unless you actually get to know people, I think like the community work is just skims the surface. At worst, it's pandering. And, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then there's a lot of things, people creating stories about people, but not with them, which is also a big issue. And it's the same thing of like, you got to have a lot of humility and, and I don't think every work has to, you know, like not every work has to like go to a specific demographic. And I think it's not always thinking about demographic. It's thinking about, well, how do people look at the world? And maybe I'm trying to find people who, you know, are excited by mythology or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's can go across a lot of different demographics. Oh, yeah. So, it, you know, I think it's, it's sometimes with, with this work, it can get simplified dangerously yeah. as well. And, and, so. and in, in this day and age, what's interesting is that because we're more connected than ever, we you are able to find you know, threads of people that cut across a lot of demos. Yeah, you know, because like oh, we're you know this this is this thread of interest or yeah. this and and interest be, interest becomes identity and identity becomes uh, its own crisis in the world in yeah. in, in so many ways. We've been at this for a while. Yeah. Um, uh, we could go even longer. I know. When I shut this down, we're going to talk Arcadia. Uh, but like that is not that is not for the No Presenting Podcast. That's for the Let's Talk About Tom Stoppard Podcast. Because um, I could do that for another hour. But um, this, this will... Uh, we're recording this on the 9th. Not... Not this week, but next week it'll be up. So the show is still running. No, no this is last, this is last weekend. weekend. Last weekend. Okay. Um, so this will. Well, maybe, maybe I'll bump. Let's just for the sake of argument, and I don't know when I'm going to air it yet. So we'll find out when I air it. Because um, we had one plan, but knowing that you guys are up this weekend, I might sh- I might juggle the plan. Uh, give the give the location date. So. Yeah, so the location is Santa Monica Beach in front of the Annenberg Beach House. And it's going to be playing May 13th, 14th, and 15th at 7.30 p.m. And you can get tickets at um, thewest.la. Fantastic. And you know what? We will run this one before we run the other one. Because the other one's evergreen, as we say in the media biz. Mm -hmm. And this will be more timely. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, no, it's 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 the right <laughs> thing to do. Uh, Kate, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to chat about all this. Yeah, this is fun. It's fun. Hopefully, we get a chance to do it again. All right. <laughs> all right. Once again, want to thank Kate Jobson for being our guest on the show today. Looking forward to the next time we get to talk, chance to talk to Kate. You can find her on Twitter at Jobson Kate. Let me spell that for you: J O P S O N K A T E. On Twitter, you can find us on Twitter at No Presinium. You can find me on Twitter at Noah J Nelson. Don't know why you'd want to do that. Um, you can find links to all the stuff we do nopresinium.com. The newsletter, this podcast, the Medium collection, etc., etc., etc. Patreon backers, again, thank you, foolish people at foolish people on Twitter for coming in at the five dollar level. Means a lot to me. 
do follow them on Twitter. Keep up with what they're doing. Uh, I get giddy about the fact that this is an international conversation. Someone's coming in from New Zealand to see some shows in L.A. That's awesome. Um, you know, uh, Siobhan of uh, Broken Bone Bathtub has done her show like all, all around the country and internationally. She's going to be at the Orlando Fringe actually uh, pretty soon. Like now. Um, this stuff goes all over the place. So, yeah, that's wonderful. What a pedestrian observation on my part. You know, you try to build up a reputation for insight, and then you say something like, oh, it's international, that's amazing. And you, you wonder, is there enough coffee in the world to make you an intelligent human being? Probably not. All right. Uh, if you want this madman to uh, have bigger schemes than ever, you go over to Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash no proscenium. You drop a dollar a month. Uh, if everyone who listened to the podcast gave a dollar a month, uh, if like we got like a dollar per download, yeah, things would be pretty nice. Things would be pretty nice. All right. Um, I don't know if the show's worth a dollar to you. If it's worth 25 cents, think about it that way. There's four shows a month. That's a dollar a month. Yeah, math works out. All right. Uh, that's enough on that. That's enough of this. Uh Go check out Second Skin. It's in Santa Monica. Uh, find links to it over at the review that we have on the Medium collection. Uh, check out Kate. Uh, check out everything that's going on. The newsletters. Open them up. Share them with friends. The newsletters will always be free. That's why we have a Patreon to pay for them. Um, yeah, that's it. There's so much going on in L.A. next month that I don't know how I'm going to do it all. But we'll find a way. And when we find that way, we're going to find that way together. Until then, I'll see you at the show.
Let me start off with a big, uh, a big one. Uh, this is an opportunity, kind of uh, an ask at the same time. Um, let me just read you this email we got from uh, Sam Roberts at Indiecade. I'm hoping to get some escape rooms and immersive performances pieces. Ugh, let me let me let me restart the news and notes. All right, because I suck. And three, two, one. Let's start off with a slightly big one. Uh, it's kind of an opportunity and a bit of an ask at the same time. Uh, let me just read you this email from Sam Roberts of Indiecade. I'm hoping to get some escape rooms and immersive performance pieces submitted to Indiecade this year, and I was wondering if you could plug submissions on the podcast in the newsletter. Uh, for folks that can't pay the submission fee, they can use the scholarships button in the submissions application or email me, sam at indiecade.com. Well, the answer is no, Sam. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to read your email. Oh, darn it. I already did. Uh, Sam Roberts is great. Uh, he's a theater kid. He's been on the show. What am I saying? You know he's great. And if you don't know that he's great, uh, go back into the archives and find the episode and listen. Indiecade is the International Festival of Independent Games. It takes place. Um, the main one is in Culver City. It also appears at E3. It also has Indiecade East. And Sam... I mean, look, if he showed up on this show, you know he's into this stuff. Uh, he's an invaluable resource just for his brain alone. And Indiecade is this wonderful um, convergence of all these different forms of play in one space um, in little old Culver City. And I would love to see what you guys do show up at Indiecade this year. Uh, there's late... Uh, like late submissions is, is due on June 1st. So we've only got a couple of weeks here to go, but I want you to check it out right now. So if you got something in mind, submit it to Indiecade. Toot sweet. Again, uh, sam at indiecade.com if you're, you've got issues with uh, submission fees. Uh, and uh, he will do his best to hook you up as he can. All right, let's go on some more news and notes. Uh, hey, let's talk about Las Vegas for a second. Uh, Table 8, which is one of the production companies out there who are playing in the space, they've got a piece uh, over at the Velveteen Rabbit right now, um, and that's what's in my show notes. And don't you know, I uh, did not write down the name of the show oh, no. because and we're going in three, I am terrible. Two, Here we go. One. Got it in the notes. The Cat's Meow, hey. and it is... Uh, it takes place in a bar, uh, the Velveteen Rabbit, but uh, the bar is transformed into uh, Charlie Chaplin's yacht. So it's like the mystery story about uh, what happened on the yacht there. So you're like jazz age, 20s, uh, murder, a bar, you're drinking, it's a party, it's Vegas. Hey, if you're around, check it out. Let me know. Um, I, I sometimes feel strange about sending you all to stuff that I have no means to you know examine myself but that's part of the game here so if you go to the show and you think it's interesting uh drop us a line you can email us uh you can drop a voicemail if you want etc cetera, etc cetera. um okay moving on 
San Francisco, this is some really big news. So the Speakeasy, which is the Speakeasy Society, that's a production company here in Los Angeles. The Speakeasy is a project of Boxcar Theater in San Francisco. They had a fabled run back in 2014. They like, did like 72 um, shows of this piece called The Speakeasy. And so it was an immersive theater bar piece. And then the venue got shut down in the Tenderloin. Like it got, got sold because San Francisco land is expensive. They're coming back finally in August. Tickets go on sale in June, and they're like a little pre-sale for people who are already members of their uh, their their club. I saw an article today that said um, the new venue is going to be nine thousand plus square feet. It's got an upstairs. It's got secret passageways. They did a two million dollar upgrade to the the space. So this is like a serious piece of installation work. That's happened in San Francisco. I've been dying for a, you know, a, a permanent piece of immersive infrastructure in California. Uh, just dying for it. I'm glad to see it's popping up in San Francisco. I'm glad it's a speakeasy. I didn't get a chance to check them out when they were uh, functioning in 2014. You know I'm going to be there as soon as I can uh, this year. So check it out. Maybe we'll go together. I'm available. I'm just saying, you know. Uh, Albert has a brief review of the two-bit story circuit. Um, two-bit story. Two-bit circus story room. It's a problem when I read the notes sometimes. Uh, that mild dyslexia I have, it comes into play. Uh, two-bit circus has a story room at the Dave and Buster's in Milpitas. It's it's part of their new initiative. Um, and Albert checked it out. That's in the latest newsletter. We're also probably going to post it over to Medium as soon as we can. Uh, so the San Francisco newsletter came out this week, hop in. The LA newsletter, which came out this week, also hop in. The Day Shall Declared, of course, is into its run now. It opened up this week, had a premiere party. Uh, Bill Radin just did a review in the LA Weekly, uh, gave it a rave. People are talking about it. One of the really cool things is they've got a, a little after hours, um, let's not call it a speakeasy, let's call it a pop-up that happens uh, in the space and behind the space there at a P Imperial Arts Center in the Arts District, they're serving barbecue at like 10 o'clock at night. But like if you know L.A. and you know the need for late night eats, like they're serving up some good cue from what I can tell uh, late. And there you go. So if you're looking for a place to uh, grab a bite, have a cocktail after 10 o'clock at night. If you've gone and seen the show, well, you're right there. If you didn't go and see the show and you just want to really impress somebody, go check out the Paradise Bar uh, over at the Day Shall Declare It at, on 7th in the Arts District. And you can find all the true details over in, you know where, the newsletter. Uh, Hollywood Fringe Festival is coming up next month. I've ID'd three shows so far that look to be actually immersive. I also ID'd one show that looks like maybe it's immersive, they're using the word, you know, I feel about that. Uh, the Truth ABC Project, which is from Annie Lesser of a lesser studio who did Getting to Know You last year. And then there's this other piece um, that looks like an interactive video game-based theater piece. It looks, I mean, it looks totally weird and probably right up our alley. So we'll do a little more digging into that for the next newsletter, and we'll definitely be checking it out at Fringe this year. Uh, this month's issue, uh, we've got new chalk rep. Uh, weeks issue. Uh, just there's, there's so much in the LA issue. It's actually somewhat overwhelming. So please, if you haven't opened up the LA newsletter yet, go open it up. You don't want to miss anything. 
You missed things last year. We had to bring things back. Don't, don't make that same mistake. Come on. You know how this works. All right. Uh, more in the news and notes. There's a lot going on. And it's great to have a lot going on. It just makes this segment longer. I need to give a shout out to foolish people who have come in and back to the show at the $5 level. Uh, foolish people is, uh, it's their... They're one of our, our Twitter followers, have been for a long time. Uh, they are, you know, deeply immersed in the immersive theater scene. And I'm so glad to have you guys on board for the ride. And maybe at some point the stars will align and we can actually like maybe talk on the show in, in, in some fashion. That would be fun. Um, all right. Uh, what else is there on that count? Um, those of you who are Patreon backers, I know I usually do this stuff at the end of the show, but I want to do it right now. Um, I'm going to send a little survey out through Patreon soon. Uh, I want to get your feedback on a couple of, of important issues. Um, there's some structural changes that are coming. I know we've been at this for like almost 50 episodes now. So the change had to come at some point. Uh, and I just want to get your, I want to, I want to check your feels. We need, we need, we need to have a hard to hard guys. Um, because I, I want to grow what we're doing. And that's, that's all. I get embarrassed about these things. I shouldn't be embarrassed about these things. You know, like this is, this is such great work that you are all doing and that I have the privilege of helping to spread word about. And so I just want to do a better job of that. So, uh, look for that soon. Um, all right. That's, that's the setup. Now let's get into this conversation with Kate. Um, I love this conversation. Didn't know what to expect necessarily going in. Um, this is awesome. I'm going to leave it at that. Enjoy. Uh, let's make some magic happen and I can feel myself coming down with a cold uh, and and you know we're just gonna we're just gonna deal with that fact we're just gonna deal with that fact in the way that we are best equipped to deal with that fact that is to try not touch the cables if at all possible and to try and make sure that our arm doesn't make a bunch of noise and yeah and here we go <coughs> here we go in 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 three, two, one.
All right. Once again, want to thank. Yeah. All right. Once again, want to thank Kate Jobson for being. You know what? Hold on a second here. I want to do this right. I want to do. I want to do this right. <coughs> All right, three. Two, one. All right, once again, I want to thank Kate Jobson for being our guest on the show today and looking forward to the next time I get to talk with her um, in person or here on the show. Uh, yeah, that is in person, but you know what I'm trying to say. All right, uh, if you want to uh, follow Kate's career, uh, check out uh, Kate on Twitter at Jobson Kate, J A. J-O-P-S-O-N-K-A-T-E. Yeah, I spelled that right. Wow, what is wrong with me today? Uh, what's wrong with me every day? I don't know. Too much or too little coffee? That's actually the answer. Uh, that's her on Twitter. Um, you can contact us on Twitter at no Persinium. No, gosh darn it. Let's do this again. Okay, three, two, one. Once again, want to thank Kate Jobson for being our guest on the show today. If you want to follow Kate's adventures, uh, check her out on Twitter at JobsonKate, J-O-P-S-O-N-K-A-T-E on Twitter. Um, you can find us on Twitter at No Persinium. You can find me on Twitter, I don't know why you'd want to, at Noah J. Nelson. You can write us uh, no underscore proscenium at outlook.com. Please do write us if you've got show tips, uh, information for us, uh, on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can uh, also just find all of the links to all the things we do, this show, the newsletter, uh, everything, noproscenium.com. We're on Medium over at medium.com slash no dash proscenium. But really, if you go to noproscenium.com, you're going to find everything. Um, again, Big thank you to Foolish People. You can find them on Twitter, at Foolish People. They've been around since 1989 doing immersive theater in the UK, and I'm just so stoked that we get to we get to have these dialogues uh, internationally. Internationally. Which reminds me, like, someone's coming from New Zealand, and, like, I, I know who it is, but, like, a little bit of, you know, you know, I don't want to, like, call someone out. Someone's coming from New Zealand who listened to the show, and they're coming to shows, like, here in L.A., and they're even, like, like elsewhere beyond L.A., here in the States. And I'm just, that, that, yeah, I'm, I'm tickled. I'm tickled by that. Uh, it's, I come from an earlier era, so a place called the 90s, where this internet thing that we do was only a, a twinkle in our eye. So to see it actually work is mind blowing to me. Uh, to be you know living in the midst of it, I know it's been forever, but still, I still get giddy about it. All right, um, all of this is made possible currently by our Patreon, not our patron, by our Patreon, by you, listeners like you. Is that trademarked? Am I going to get in trouble? Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Um, Drop a dollar, drop five dollars. Uh, we only charge it by the month. 
we aim to make the show better all the time. I've honing in on some ideas uh, for what to kind of quid pro quo here. But I mean, just know this, like the, the, the more that that, you know, stream of funds comes through, uh, the more attention uh, I can I can carve out as opposed to like taking side gigs uh, above and beyond the day job that are not called no proscenium. Um, one day it'd even be nice if this is all we did. That would be really nice. All right. On that note, uh, I'm going to be at a bunch of shows in the next few weeks. Hopefully I'll see you around if you're here in LA. If you're in New York, keep an eye out for Zay. If you're in the Bay Area, keep an eye out for Albert. If you're in Chicago, keep an eye out for Dean. If you're in Orlando, hey, Broken Bone Bathtub is going to be at the Orlando Fringe. And keep an eye out for our friend Cindy Marie Jenkins, because uh, she's going to be checking out shows there at the Orlando Fringe. If you know of shows anywhere in the States, like uh, in Denver, Sweet and Lucky, which is a third rail project show, that's coming up. Um, anywhere, let us know. We want to we wanna tell everybody. That's why we're here. So write us. Voicemail us. Tweet at us. Anywhere in the world. We'll be here for you. All right. Until you do that. Until next time. I'll see you at the show.